0: Welcome to our continuing 2019 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics to the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Lauren Russell, an attorney at Young, Conway, Stargatt and Taylor with us today. Lauren specializes in the representation of employers on a range of issues relating to compliance with local, state and federal labor and employment laws and constitutional provisions. She provides compassionate and responsive counsel targeted at achieving client goals while minimizing cost and risk. Lauren emphasizes client counseling on issues ranging from wage and hour compliance to workplace training and investigations to effective employee terminations with the goal of avoiding litigation before it begins. Her counseling practice includes handbook revisions, effective policy implementation, and on-site training to legal compliance. Lauren has developed and conducts specialized in-house training for emerging legal issues, including pregnancy, reproductive rights, and family care provisions of the Delaware Discrimination in Employment Act. One of her current programs outlines the complexities of the Me Too movement and offers executives essential information on harassment avoidance and Modifying corporate culture. Lauren also conducts high-level investigations of discrimination and harassment on behalf of employers. When litigation becomes necessary, Lauren is dedicated, um, is a dedicated advocate, aggressively pursuing her client's best interests and providing clear guidance at each stage of the proceeding. Lauren has litigated a wide variety of employment-related matters to successful resolutions, including employment discrimination, non-competition, and constitutional law cases. Lauren has experience in each of the Delaware's state and federal courts, as well as the U.S. Court of Appeals of the Third Circuit. Lauren also regularly assists clients in administrative proceedings before state and federal administrative agencies, including the EEOC and Delaware Office of Anti-Discrimination and the Delaware Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board. A short plug-in also, Lauren and I recently did a radio show together for Healthcare Now Radio that's now in podcast called Combat Workplace Sexual Harassment in the Me Too Era. This can be found on Um, Anywhere that you find your um, podcasts, um, such as iTunes, Google Play, um, on First Healthcare Compliance's website, SoundCloud, Stitcher, anywhere you like to get your podcasts. Um, I'll try to put a link in to one of your follow-up emails. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We'll address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your Paycom and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your Paycom certificate will come directly from Paycom, and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. They'll come automatically. Additional CEU opportunities are available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a button on the side panel. So, welcome, Lauren. We appreciate having you here.
1: Thank you so much, Catherine. That's a, a lovely introduction. Um, and I am thrilled, again, to uh, be working with you all to address some of the most pressing issues in uh, workplaces uh, here. You know, uh, drug abuse and alcohol abuse, I uh, you know, have plagued employers for many, many years, um, but we are particularly attentive to issues of drug addiction and abuse uh, in the workplace right now, given the opioid ep- epidemic and and the prominence of that issue in media coverage. Uh, so today we are going to uh, talk about several issues. We're going to start talking about an effective drug policy. That should really be the basis for any action that you take, um, of course, I, I reference the drug policy. Uh, really, we want to be talking about drugs and alcohol. Um, alcohol is a little bit trickier because it's a legal substance, right? And there's, there's nothing wrong with going home and having a beer at the end of the day. Um, the problem arises when we abuse lawful substances, uh, and we're going to talk about that both in the, in the alcohol and the drug context. So um, step one, an effective policy. Step two, testing and discipline. Um, you know, a, a policy is uh, generally enforced through drug and alcohol testing. So when do we do that? How do we do that? Ensuring that we're protecting ourselves. We're going to talk about that. And then we'll move on to working within the law. There are several statutes that impact the way that we enforce um, drug and alcohol policies. Uh, We'll begin with the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Family and Medical Leave Act, both of which can allow for certain accommodations when somebody has an addiction problem. Uh, We're also gonna talk about an emerging issue in OSHA compliance. This is probably the least discussed issue relating to the enforcement of drug and alcohol testing uh, procedures. And then we're going to finish up with the emerging issue of medical marijuana. That is far none the hardest issue for my clients. And we're now in a position where a majority of states have legalized the use of marijuana in some fashion or other. Um, And, you know, of course, we're learn we're learning about this as we go we don't have clear guidance from the federal government so uh these are you know all all tricky issues but but things that we can master so let's start with uh the topic of effective uh drug and alcohol policies um there are two types of these policies they can be rolled together they can be implemented separately but the first is for recipients of federal funding Under the Drug-Free Workplace Act of 1988, employers are required, if you are a recipient of federal funding, to uh, have a policy addressing a drug-free workplace. And it requires that employees disclose uh, within five calendar days of a conviction uh, that they have been convicted of a criminal drug violation right? Um, So this is, uh, you know, it's the tie between uh, drug abuse uh, and conviction and the workplace. So it's a a drug violation related to work. Um, Now, employers who are not federal contractors sort of gloss over the Drug-Free Workplace Act of 1988 and think that's really not my problem. But we have the option, uh, and, and I think it's a, a valuable one to require that disclosure even if you're not receiving federal funding. So I, I you know encourage employers to consider whether they want to have such a policy uh, and whether you want to fold it into uh the the remainder of, of, of your drug and alcohol um management policy. Consider the same thing for alcohol abuse. If you have an employee who's been arrested and convicted of driving under the influence, whether it's alcohol, marijuana, or anything else, think about your business and whether that's relevant information. Even, I mean, certainly you care very, very deeply if they are arrested and convicted for conduct while, you know, during work time. So if I am driving to a client's office and I am under the influence and I'm pulled over and given a breathalyzer test or a field sobriety test and they find that I am under the influence, my employer should be very, very concerned because of course I would have been using those substances while on duty or under the influence while on duty. The question becomes, and certainly that that disclosure should be required, Uh, and you probably know that I got arrested because I didn't show up at my meeting on time. Um, The question becomes what happens with out-of-work activity? Um, Keep in mind that for those of you in the private sector, so non-public medical providers, um, you are very free, Uh, there are very few restrictions on your ability to manage employees' out-of-work conduct. Um, you could in theory, although I would never recommend such a thing, you could in theory say we don't permit any employees to use alcohol outside of the office period. I assume most of you who have employees who are on call have policies prohibiting drinking uh, and certainly any, you know, the use of any um, intoxicating substances uh, while somebody is on call uh, because they need to be able to come into work and be sober and do their jobs. Um, but you could, I mean, you could, in theory, have much broader policies that say no alcohol anytime ever, period. Again, I do not recommend those policies. You would have a very hard time attracting qualified candidates if you said you're never allowed to drink ever. Um, But there are very, uh, especially in the medical field, uh, very many circumstances under which you do want to limit the consumption of intoxicating substances out of the work. Again, for example, when people are on call. So consider how much you care about out-of-work conduct uh, and, and whether you want to require the disclosure of arrests and or convictions for uh, things like public intoxication, driving under the influence, driving while impaired, um, just food for thought. Uh, as we're talking about policies, these are really reflections of your businesses, um, philosophies on personnel management. And as we go through, we're going to talk about times when I think that, you know, testing is a good idea, when I think testing is a bad idea. Um, There is such a thing as too much information about your employees. Um, So, uh, again, that's an option, not required. Now, what should you absolutely always, always, always have? A A generalized drug and alcohol policy that says simply, you shall not do these naughty things you know, while you're at work or, you know, during during work hours. So where do we begin? Know your state laws. Um, it is uh, true in some jurisdictions that there are limitations on things like um, suspicionless drug testing. That means randomized drug testing policies that have no relationship to job performance. So it's, it's a Tuesday in May, uh, you shall be tested for drugs today. Uh, so the very first thing you wanna do when developing and implementing your policy is get some uh, counsel from a local employment attorney and make sure that you know what your state laws are. Um, many of you uh, will be subject to very strict regulations because of the nature of the medical field. And so when testing is required, drug testing is required, for example, under things like federal grants or if it's a condition of the receipt of Medicare or Medicaid funding, things like that, those federal testing requirements generally, generally supersede local and state uh, prohibitions on drug testing but make sure you know your rules. Uh, So talk to a local employment attorney. Next, determine what the scope of your policy is going to be. Here is what I recommend you prohibit. Obviously, illegal drug use, right? You cannot buy heroin on the street and use that. That would be a very traditional example of illegal drug use that is, you know, a bar if we find out that you have done that, you will be subject to discipline. Second, we need to manage the use of prescription and over-the-counter drugs, right? Um, getting high from a street drug is not the only way to get high, as, as we all know. Um, so with regard to prescription drugs, they should only be used by the person they're prescribed to, obviously. It becomes an illegal drug if it's being used by somebody who it's not prescribed to but we all know that family member who loves to hand out leftover prescription medication. Oh, I've got leftover antibiotics. Little Junior has a cough here, just give him this. Now, if you're in the medical field, you know how dangerous that is and how incredibly inappropriate it is, but it we're all related to, to non, uh, non-practitioners and people do silly things, staff members do silly things. So make it clear in your policy that the use of prescription drugs by anyone other than the person they're prescribed to is a violation of your policy. Likewise, use of prescription medications in a way that is inconsistent with the package labeling. So my label says take one OxyContin every four to six hours, and I'm taking three every 30 minutes. Uh, I would assume that would kill me, but, um, you know, if it doesn't, then obviously that is a you know, a use of that drug that is inconsistent with the prescription itself that should be a violation of the policy. The same thing for over-the-counter drugs. Uh, if you are drinking cough syrup to get drunk, that is not an appropriate use of cough syrup. So any over-the-counter drugs should only be used in the manner prescribed on the packaging uh, unless otherwise prescribed by a doctor. you know of course there are very high dose uh, um prescriptions for over the counter medications like ibuprofen that are given after surgery um again while that would be off label use for for the drug as an over the counter medication it's on you know it's, it's consistent with the prescription that would be issued by the doctor that that would be fine um so a prescription can override the limitations placed by over, on over-the-counter drugs by their packaging. Just keep that conflict in mind. So we prohibit illegal drug use. We prohibit prescription and over-the-counter drug use off-label and then uh, alcohol use or intoxication during work functions. This gives my clients more trouble than almost anything because Um, The vast majority of employers uh, have circumstances in which alcohol use is acceptable, right? If you have doctors going to medical conferences, they will be drinking, just like lawyers who go to events are drinking. Um, So we wanna be clear about when alcohol use is acceptable and when alcohol use is unacceptable, right? During work time and work hours, alcohol use should be unacceptable you know, with the exception of some some very rare circumstances. If you want to include an exception for work functions where alcohol is provided by the employer, you can do that. Um, but certainly, better safe than sorry, more restrictive is better than less restrictive for my money. Now, uh, not only do we want to limit the use of all of those substances under the circumstances that I've described, We want to prohibit the manufacture, distribution, or possession of those substances while uh, on work premises during work time. For any of you who represent traveling medical professionals. Um, So for example, um, doctors are often on work time, but they're traveling between the practice's offices and a hospital, for example. Um, Or they are working in a surgery center and outside of the normal office. Usually the the business doesn't own the surgery center, you just have rights to, to perform surgical procedures there. So it's really important that your policy both limits Um, misconduct on work premises, uh, so that would be your your primary office, but also during work time when they're out of the office, so at a surgery center, on the road traveling to a patient's home, any of those circumstances. uh, so, possession is limited, distribution is limited, so, you know, that, that gets to Aunt Fanny who's giving out the, the um, antibiotics or leftover Oxy. Um, they may not give out medication in the workplace um, to anybody who's not on the prescription. It is, of course, fine to share Advil or Tylenol or Benadryl in the office, um, you yeah. You know anybody who's silly enough to take Benadryl during work hours? God bless. I mean that would put me asleep under the desk. But um, you know those kinds of over the counter prescript- uh, over the counter medications are fine to share as long as you're not doling out you know massive doses of them, right? Um, so think about how you're going to manage those issues think about how this impacts your workplace. Um, You know, I can tell you what the general rules are for businesses across uh, industries. This is the way we draft these policies for employers in a whole host of fields. Banking, education, uh, law firms. But medical practices are unique. You keep, you know, Sensitive uh, prescription drugs, and so, I mean, for those of you who are working in hospitals, certainly on premises. Um, and so it may be that you want to clarify the limitations on the possession and distribution of prescription and over the counter medications because doctors do that by nature, right? When you write a prescription and give somebody medication, you are distributing drugs. Um, Of course, that's acceptable. Of course, that's appropriate. That's what a doctor does. Um, But, uh, you know, when it is outside of the role of a practicing medical professional, then it becomes appropriate. So as you're drafting these policies, do consider the unique limitations, uh, the unique circumstances in which medical professionals practice. Um, and make sure you're drafting your policy with an eye to those realities. Now, um, what about legal over-the-counter medications? Uh, What if Bob Smith is taking uh, a legal prescription consistent with the dosing recommendations? What if he's taking a Benadryl, right, Um, and it's just one Benadryl at the beginning of the shift because uh, it's a bad allergy season? Do we have a problem with that? Do we have a right to limit it? yes we can um i generally draft my policies to permit the use of legal drugs prescription or non-prescription doesn't matter only if they do not impair an employee's ability to perform the essential functions of his or her job in a safe and effective manner if you pop two benadryl and then go perform surgery and fall asleep in the middle that's a big problem right that would be a, a classic example of legal drug use that would be impermissible under a, uh, a, a drug and alcohol policy. You know, if you catch an employee sleeping on the job because they took too much Benadryl, those are problems. They would be perfectly legal, um, but you can still impose additional restrictions above what the law prohibits. Um, So keep that in mind. Uh, How do I handle this? I require employees to come forward. You don't know in many cases, if I have a really bad toothache, um, if I've had root canal surgery, you may know that I had a root canal, but you may not know that the doctor prescribed me Oxycontin to manage the pain. Uh, And so what I do in my policies is I require that employees affirmatively come forward and disclose that they are using prescriptions that cause impairment. If you're taking a drug that prohibits you from operating heavy machinery, including driving, you probably shouldn't be doing a lot of professional work. Um, So we want them to disclose to HR. They should not be disclosing to any random member of management because the reality is that they may be disclosing a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Once you know about a disability, you run the risk of discriminating and of being accused of discriminating under the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. So we want these disclosures, if your organization is large enough to have an HR department, these disclosures should only be made to HR. Um, What else do we need? Accurate, up-to-date job descriptions. How do I know that my medication may interfere with my ability to perform the essential functions of the job if I don't know what the essential functions of my job are. The very best defense to a claim of um, disability discrimination is an accurate up-to-date job description. Of course, there are a million and one ways you can run afoul of the ADA. That is a very long seminar for another day. But, uh, you know, a job description that says you must be awake and alert at all times will help defend against uh, a claim of discrimination when you say, no, you can't come to work when you're on Benadryl, right? Um, Benadryl causes you, specifically Bob Smith, to fall asleep. We're not relying just on the label indications, but we want to know how the medication actually impacts the person. Um, Benadryl puts me out like it puts out most people, right? Uh, You know, you take that pill, you go take a nap. So an up-to-date job description that identifies what you need to be able to do, critical thinking, right? Um, Managing stress, those kinds of things should be in a job description for a medical professional. And, you know, I say medical professionals, I mean everything from uh, your nursing assistants to a thoracic surgeon, I mean, all of those people should, uh, you know, there should be a clear description of the fundamentals of their job. It shouldn't say, you know, it's not going to tell a thoracic surgeon how to perform thoracic surgery. It's going to say you need to be able to stand. You need to be able to think critically. You need to be able to manage stress, right? Those are essential elements of the job of a doctor. Um, Usually, there are certain, you know, aspects of of medical care where maybe you don't need to stand, for example, but I've, I I think we're safe in saying that all doctors need to be able to think critically and perform under stress, for example. Those are things that you need to have in the job description so that when somebody brings you a prescription and says, hey, I'm on this drug, but I think I'm just fine. I can work, it's no big deal. You can say, no, no, no. We know that this drug affects people in this way. I'm seeing that it's affecting you in this way while you're on the job. You can't take that prescription and do your current job. Now we're gonna talk about accommodations and how we, you know, if they can't do their current job, what can they do, right? Do we send them home or do we give them other work? We'll talk about that in a little bit. All right, so um, drug policies, we've talked about what they prohibit. We've talked about, uh, you know, the scope and how we manage legal drug use. Now, what do we do, right? Employees must report if they have knowledge or a suspicion of a policy violation. If your secretarial staff thinks that another employee has a drug or alcohol problem, they've gotta speak up and say something, right? Um, it's it's really essential that this information be reported up the chain of command. Um, when employers uh, have employees who know or suspect about this, this behavior, and then something goes wrong, um, the employer can be charged with knowledge of, 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 you know, of what, what was brewing uh, because some of their staff knew. Uh, so it's really, really important that staff understand the importance of reporting concerns up the chain of command. Um, what else do we want employees who come to a point where they know that they have a drug or alcohol problem should be reporting on themselves right um, that's hard there are a lot of people who have abuse or addiction issues um, and lie to themselves I mean that's a, a classic indicator a, a classic um, characteristic of drug and alcohol abuse I don't have a problem you have a problem right Um Those people are not going to come forward and and admit that they have a problem. But once they begin to realize that addiction is affecting their lives, uh, once they begin seeking treatment, we do want to encourage those people to come forward and disclose that they've got an addiction problem so that we can support them in getting the help that they need. Um, It is... uh, a reality that employers invest a tremendous amount of money in developing employee talent, and that's from the most entry-level staff person through your, you know, high-performing uh, revenue-generating doctors. Um, we invest; we spend time. At a bare minimum, they learn your systems, right? They, um, your uh, electronic record-keeping systems, your billing systems. Once we have somebody up to speed. If they're a good employee, we wanna keep them. Uh, and so if those employees come forward and say, I have a problem, I need I need X, Y, and Z so that I can get help and you know, continue to be a high-functioning employee for you, we should encourage them to come forward and, and get help. Again, they need to come forward before disciplinary offenses occur. If you come forward and say, yes, I have missed three days of work in a row, but it's because I have a drug addiction problem and I wanna to go to rehab and you know, now you can't discipline me. No, absolutely not. You can still discipline the misconduct. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. Um, the fact that somebody discloses that they have an addiction problem after the misconduct does not protect them from disciplinary action for the misconduct. The law is actually very clear on this issue. Employees get disciplined for bad behavior. The fact that they disclose uh, a protected category after the fact does not give them protection for preceding misconduct. Okay, how do we enforce drug testing, right? Now, uh, your policy should address your drug testing practices if you intend to drug test right? Some policies just say don't use drugs and alcohol, you know, and they go through all of the different circumstances that I described. Almost all policies provide at least for reasonable suspicion testing, and that's the last bullet point at the bottom. Um, Reasonable suspicion testing occurs when you have quite you know a, 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 as the phrase indicates reasonable suspicion that somebody has been using drugs or alcohol either before work and they've come to work under the influence or that they've been using at work and are under the influence so at a bare minimum you want to provide for uh, drug testing when there is a what we would call a reasonable articulable suspicion of drug use during uh, or intoxication during during the workday and we'll talk a little bit more about what that looks like. Um, what other types of drug testing exist? Uh, pre-employment drug testing um, is uh, the sort of heaviest-handed uh, approach, and especially in combination with random drug testing. So, under a pre-employment drug testing regime, you would issue a uh, a conditional offer of employment. Subject to drug testing, Uh, so subject to, you know, a a clean drug test or an acceptable drug test. Um, The first question that you've got to ask yourself before you determine to engage in pre-employment drug testing is, do you care and should you care? Um, This is a tough question to answer, and it differs on the basis of the, the person you're hiring, Right. Do you care for a doctor? Maybe you do. Do you care for your secretarial staff? Maybe you don't, right? Um, And keep in mind that this is going to pull up anything from a heroin addiction to to, to recreational marijuana use, right? A lot of my clients like the idea of pre-employment drug testing because they think using drugs is against the law and I don't want anybody who violates the law on my payroll. Really though, I mean, at the end of the day, drug use, um, and you know, I'm thinking particularly of recreational marijuana use, doesn't have much impact on an employer's interests. Um, again, the medical field is different from a lot of employment scenarios, but think critically about this issue you don't ask all of your job applicants if they speed, right? That's breaking the law. And in a lot of states, speeding and possessing less than an ounce of marijuana are actually pretty much on the same level, right? They are minor misdemeanor offenses where you get a ticket. Um, So, do you care for certain of your staff members? Perhaps the answer is yes. Do you care for all of your staff members? Usually the answer is no. So think critically. You can selectively engage in pre-employment drug testing. Any drug testing you do that is either pre-employment or random should affect all individuals in the same same job category in the same way, right? So Um, We test all doctors and all nurses, but we don't test any secretarial staff, for example. You can't test just one doctor and none of the others. Um, But you, you know, as long as all doctors are being, all applicants for, you know, a a physician position are being subjected to pre-employment drug screening, that's fine. Similarly with random testing, all doctors, all nurses, uh, you know, that's fine. Of course, you don't have to test them all in a single round, um, but they all need to be going into the pool uh, so that you can draw names and identify who's going to be tested. Now, when we engage in random drug testing, there are a couple of considerations for those of you in the public sector. Um, The Fourth Amendment, which uh, prohibits a government or a government agency from uh, unreasonable searches and seizures, uh, applies to the taking of physical specimens. So uh, taking my blood, drawing my blood, or taking my hair, or my saliva, is a search and seizure under the Fourth Amendment. If you are a publicly run hospital, the Veterans Administration, for example, um, if you are a a government uh, entity, if, uh, if the, Um, State of Massachusetts has its own public healthcare system, for example, the Commonwealth, excuse me. Um, Then those employees have Fourth Amendment rights. How do you overcome the prohibition against uh, searches and seizures? You need to be able to identify why the employees who you wanna uh, subject to pre-employment testing or random drug testing, why are they different, right? Um, is it a safety-sensitive position? I would argue that any medical provider, any, any physician um, should, you know, they can do so much damage if they are under the influence, they could kill somebody, that it would be essential to engage in pre- pre-employment and random drug testing. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, your janitorial staff, no, right? Um, they are not going to be such a huge risk Um, that somebody would die if they were under the influence of drugs. So you probably would not be able to do random uh, suspicionless drug testing with regards to janitorial staff. Now, if you've got a specific problem with your janitorial staff, so we've got a wide ranging drug theft problem and it's all the janitors, right? Um, If you can point to something like that, you may be able to justify random drug testing of a non-safety sensitive position. But this is an issue where you have to consult lawyers, right? Do not, do not, do not engage in any pre-employment or random drug testing without suspicion if you are a public sector employer until you've talked to a lawyer. You really, really wanna make sure you raise this Fourth Amendment issue and examine what the law is in your jurisdiction. So that's the only sort of caveat there. Um, For the private sector, you can drug test anybody and everybody as often as you want, provided that you're willing to pay the cost. The issue is really, do you care? Do you wanna test everybody? Okay, so that is uh, pre-employment uh, drug testing and random drug testing. The other thing we see very frequently, especially uh, it, for employers who have um, CDL drivers on their staff, so if you have ambulance drivers, for example, I don't know if they need a CDL, but anybody who's driving a vehicle for you may be subjected to post-accident testing. Um, and I believe we talk about, yes, post-accident testing thresholds. So again, random drug testing must be random. You should actually be using a randomizer. You can get software online, and what you do is you put all of the employees' names or social security numbers or employee ID numbers into the randomizer, and every month it'll pick some names for you, and those are the people you send for testing. Post-accident testing, Um, usually we condition testing on some minimum threshold, right? So if I gently bump into my company-issued vehicle with my shoulder bag, is it technically an accident? Yes, did I scratch the paint job? Maybe. Um, Are you gonna test me for alcohol or drug abuse? Of course you're not, right? That was just me being clumsy. Usually we require post-accident testing if there has been a physical injury, either on the part of the driver or the other side. So if I am driving an ambulance, I hit a car, if I'm not injured, but the driver of the other car is injured, we would still send our employee for post-accident testing. The other thing we use is the financial threshold. So if there is more than $500 worth of damage, for example. Now, just about any auto accident is going to meet that threshold. Even touching up a paint job costs $500 these days. So identify what your financial threshold may be, um, and then you require immediate testing, right? You can't send the vehicle to the shop, get the response back, and then do the testing. You're gonna to have to take a look at the at the vehicle that's been in the accident, get a sense of whether or not you think the damage is going to rise to your financial threshold. Is this a you know a gentle bump into a concrete pillar, there's no real damage, or have they totaled a vehicle, then obviously they need to go for testing. Um, When we do this testing, post-accident and reasonable suspicion testing, you must drive the employee to the testing site, right? If you have reason to believe that somebody, and believe it or not, I had a client who had this situation and they said, oh yeah, well, we just told the employee to go get tested. Are you kidding me? That completely undermines your suspicion of being under the influence. We don't let people who are under the influence drive vehicles. So if you say, oh, yes, we think they were drunk or we think they were high on the job and you let them get into a car, either you are incredibly reckless or you didn't really think that they were under the influence. And I can tell you that a court or an arbitrator is going to look at that and say, well, you must not have thought that they were under the influence. You let them get behind the vehicle, right? Um, So you must, must, must take them yourself, wait for them to give the specimen. You obviously don't wait for the results, you get those later. And then you drive them home or you um, drive them back to the work site and let somebody else pick them up. But if you think they are under the influence, they do not get into a vehicle. All right. Now, uh, back to reasonable suspicion testing. As I said earlier, we need a reasonable, articulable suspicion. That means you have to be able to tell me, your lawyer, when when I talk to you about this, what signs and symptoms you thought indicated intoxication. For people in the medical field, I would've hoped that that wouldn't be too difficult, right? Um, you should be able to tell me that there were bloodshot eyes, they smelled of marijuana or alcohol, uh, they were slurring their speech, stumbling, falling asleep, dilated pupils, contracted pupils. Those are the kinds of things I wanna be able to hear. What I would also like is for you to maintain, as a business, a signed checklist of possible symptoms of intoxication. You can find these documents all over the place online. You could probably get them from some local police organization that has certified uh, field sobriety testing experts. Um, And what I want you to do is the manager who witnesses the employee under the influence, who says, hey, you look drunk or you look high, that manager, and there should be a manager, I mean, we're not relying on our secretarial staff for this, there should be a manager who comes over, looks at the person who you know is alleged to be under the influence, and says, "Yes, uh huh, I think that person is is under the influence." They then complete that checklist and say, "He, you know," and literally it should take five minutes, right? It should be easy, easy, easy to do this. Check uh, checklist next to smells of marijuana. Check next to um drowsy at work check next to dilated pupils check next to bloodshot eyes right this should be super duper simple they sign it and date it the manager does right that is akin to a witness statement right i saw this this is what made me think that there was shenanigans shenanigans afoot Um, that's a great way to defend your reasonable suspicion drug testing and then again we don't let them get into a vehicle all right, so testing procedure, I want you to use a third-party vendor, right? Um, LabCorp Quest Diagnostics. Um, if you are in a hospital, I, I suppose you could use your um, the, the lab group in the hospital, but you don't want one of your employees testing samples for another one of your employees, right? So if you're in a hospital, it's fine to use the hospital's um, phlebotomy lab, as long as that phlebotomy lab is not uh, they're not your employees right if you are in the business of um drug testing if you are lab if you are quest diagnostics send the person to another facility for testing um, just because it avoids the appearance that you're rigging the system right um could you technically have employees testing each other? Of course you could. There's, there's no law against it. It just doesn't look good. By the way, it also, um, you know, discloses sensitive information. Um, an employee is going to feel that, you know, their private medical information is being viewed by coworkers and PS, they'd be right. Um, so the more distance you can give, the better, the more you can protect privacy, the better. Again, as I've already said, post-accident and reasonable suspicion testing, you drive the employee to the testing site, you wait and drive them back to the work site or you drive them home. Do not let them drive. All right, a couple of thoughts on how we manage the outcome. Refusal to consent to testing. If they refuse to sign the testing consent form that you have, automatic termination. Right, they're hiding information from you. Uh, we treat it as a positive test, they get fired. Now, what happens if you actually get a positive test? Do you have to fire the employee? No, you don't. Um, there are a couple of things I want you to do. First, you meet with the employee and permit a chance for them to address the results, right? If somebody says, a test positive for heroin, and says, no, I've never used heroin a day in my life, um, and, you know, here is what actually happened, then I want to know that Um, just because, you know, you don't ever want to be in a position where you're finding out information for the first time when you get sued. But that being the case, treat all cases alike, right? Um, Employees who test positive, if if you have a zero tolerance policy, everybody needs to be fired. Think about how you would want to treat your favorite employee, right? The person who always says yes to overtime, the person who works every single weekend, every single holiday, pick that person and say if they tested positive for drugs how would i treat them uh my employee my clients uh, frequently come to me and say well you know normally we have a zero tolerance policy but this person is so good we just we want to send them to rehab and keep them forever you know we we can't we can't fire this person You are treating people in a similar situation disparately, and if somebody else gets fired and they look at the person you kept and said, well, that person stayed, and I'm a man and that person's a woman. I'm gay and that person's straight. I'm Christian and that person's Muslim. You're setting up a discrimination claim, right? So make sure that you decide how you would treat your very best employee and treat everybody that way. Um, You can terminate. You can require them to go to treatment, followed by discipline right, um, so you uh, are going to visit our EAP provider, you're gonna do whatever treatment regimen EAP requires, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, and when you come back, you are going to be demoted or you are going to be, whatever the case may be, whatever discipline you think is appropriate, you can do that. Any employee who tests positive for drugs or alcohol, um, you know, during work time, and the, that you allow to return to work should be subject to a last chance agreement that requires random testing, right? Usually what we say is you have to keep your nose clean for 12 months and you will subject yourself to random testing at our at our election, right? We could send you once, we could send you 25 times over the next 12 months, but you will submit to random testing anytime we ask. It's suspicionless. And that's to provide you protection, right? The company needs to know that the person is clean, even though they're showing up to work and they look sober. So that is testing and discipline. How does this interact with the various statutes that govern uh, labor and employment law? Um, Americans with Disabilities Act active. Treats, treats drug and alcohol issues differently. Active drug abuse is not a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? We know that it is. Uh, the federal government, because the use of illegal drugs is um, treated uh, so so clearly, so harshly under federal law, um, they just don't recognize active drug addiction as a protected characteristic now. Note: Being a recovering drug addict, if you are in treatment and not actively using, then you have a disability and you are protected under the ADA. So we cannot discriminate against people because they are in recovery. By contrast, active alcoholism is a disability. Uh, similarly, being a recovering alcoholic uh, is is protected. That. Is sort of a foregone conclusion, but active alcoholism renders you protected. If somebody is an active alcoholic, you can't just fire them because of the alcoholism. What do we do? We discipline the conduct, right? Active alcoholics, even high functioning alcoholics, have work problems, right? They're not showing up on time. They're not meeting deadlines discipline them under your standard policies, right? If they violate your attendance policy, discipline them. If they are not meeting your performance expectations, discipline them. If they are surly and having interpersonal conflicts, discipline them under whatever policies you have. So just because they are an active alcoholic doesn't mean they're protected. All it means is that we have to discipline them for the conduct, not the disease, right? This should be true, by the way, of active drug addicts, too. Um, While drug abuse is not a protected disability under the ADA, you shouldn't be firing somebody because they're a drug addict. You should be identifying the the conduct that they're engaging in that's problematic and disciplining that. Um, So This is just a good rule of thumb anytime we have somebody that we think may be under a... um, a protected category uh, and this should be intuitive it's it's not but it should be because you compare it to other protected categories right if you have somebody who is of a particular religion or a particular race um, we don't discipline them because of their religion or their race we discipline them because they have performance problems right so I uh, we should be treating alcoholism uh, drug addiction even dependency that maybe is not to the level of addiction yet. um, We should be treating that in the same way that we would treat any other protected category, which is to say we discipline the conduct, not the membership in a protected category. Now, the ADA also requires that we accommodate disabilities. If I am a recovering drug addict or a recovering alcoholic and I tell you that I need to leave (coughs) at 5 p.m. every Friday so that I can go to an AA or an NA meeting, then you need to accommodate my uh, any, any leave that I need to maintain my sobriety, right? Um, it has to be an interactive process. Um, you need to, things that can be covered in addition to active uh, people who are in active recovery treatment. The use of prescription and over-the-counter medications, right? Uh, let's say I'm not a drug addict. Let's say that I... Um, have fibromyalgia and I need to use uh, Oxycontin on a regular basis Uh, or as we'll talk about later, medical marijuana. Um, Can I safely do my job while I'm taking those prescription or over-the-counter medications? If I can't, if the medication interferes with the safety uh, of my work or my job performance, then what else can I do? Um, If it is a short-term prescription, so I had root canal surgery, and i need to be on oxycontin for seven days then consider a short-term leave right that should be super duper easy you put me out I either on paid leave short-term disability whatever the case may be until i no longer need the prescription then i come back to work if it is a long-term prescription if it is fibromyalgia for example and i need to use heavy duty painkillers um on an as needed basis then you need to consider whether there are other open job uh, opportunities within the organization for which I'm qualified, right? Maybe I can no longer perform thoracic surgery, but could I do some other type of work within your organization? So think about all of those things. As I said, compliance with the ADA could be an all-day seminar. So we're not gonna get too deeply into these issues but know that the ADA deeply impacts the way we deal with drug and alcohol use and abuse, right, whether it's legal or illegal in the workplace, this is a great time to consult outside legal counsel. All right, the Family and Medical Leave Act, how does that play in? The Family and Medical Leave Act provides uh, 12 weeks of unpaid leave to qualified employees what do you need to be qualified? You have to have worked for the company. And when I say that you have to have been employed by 12 months uh, for 12 months, you have to, during that 12 month period, have worked 1,250 hours. That's not a lot of time. That covers a lot of part-time employees. And then the employer has to have 50 or more employees within a 75 mile radius. For those of you who are part of healthcare networks, if your office has two employees, you're not automatically exempt, right? You're gonna be looking at all of the offices within that network in a 75 mile radius if they're all you know, part of the, if all of the individuals are employed by the same business entity. And again, it gives you leave for a serious health condition that makes the employee unable to perform the essential functions of his or her job. What's a serious health condition? Usually drug and alcohol addiction, right? Um, Those uh, make it impossible for you to perform the essential functions of the job, and you need uh, ongoing medical treatment. There's the requirements of the FMLA and what qualifies as a serious health condition are fairly complex. There are a lot of regulations. Again, we're not going to go into the, all of that. But um, usually, if you need ongoing medical care, psychologist, psychiatrist, um, any kind of ongoing drug treatment plan, um, you know, to, so, for example, um, I... Uh, heroin replacement um, treatments and things like that, uh, opioid um, addiction um, medications, Uh, then you're going to be seeing doctors regularly. You're going to be seeing healthcare professionals regularly. Those things qualify as serious health conditions. So what is your right? You you can take leave to obtain inpatient rehab treatment or intermittently for outpatient treatment if you need to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist regularly um, to support your recovery. Those kinds of things are all grounds on which you could receive family and medical leave, act, leave. All right, OSHA. As I said, this is a really interesting area that is, evolving and fairly new. Um, OSHA under the Obama administration issued an opinion letter that said that blanket post-accident drug testing discourages the reporting of workplace accidents. And as a result, it interferes with OSHA's central mission, which is to identify unsafe working conditions and remedy them. So they said blanket post-accident drug testing, that is drug testing of anybody who is in an accident period, no matter the circumstances, is a violation of OSHA. Now, query whether that's going to be enforced under the current administration. You know, I would suspect the answer is a resounding no. Um, but uh, nevertheless, there is this idea out there now, right? There's this thought that maybe blanket testing, like I talked about at the beginning of, of the presentation, uh, interferes with OSHA. What do we do um, if that is the case? And, and By the way, this is a best practice no matter what you think. Testing should be based again on a reasonable articulable suspicion that the accident was drug or alcohol related. So what do we do? You break out that exact same checklist that I was talking about earlier when we discussed reasonable suspicion testing and you have somebody report to the accident site with that checklist in hand and look at the employee. Do they smell like alcohol? Do they um, have bloodshot eyes? Are they drowsy? Now, the symptoms of an accident, of of physical trauma, may very well look like um, the uh, same types of issues that we would see in a drug or alcohol um, intoxication scenario. I don't want whoever goes out there to say, well, I think this is because of the trauma of the accident and not because of drug or alcohol testing. Use the list. If there are any of the symptoms on the list that are present, then take the person for testing, right? Um, If they need hospital treatment or medical treatment, because of that accident, they should be getting drug tested anyway. Um, So go ahead and, and implement that procedure. That's a great way to address the concerns that have been raised by OSHA. Now, medical marijuana. What do we do and how do we manage this? Holy guacamole, is this a tricky issue. 33 states at my last check, and this is changing day to day, but something like 33 states have legalized medical marijuana, about 10 states have legalized recreational marijuana. And then there are small municipalities, uh, like the District of Columbia, for example, um, that are also addressing legalization in certain circumstances. Usually this has to be dealt with on a statewide level, but DC is in its own unique circumstances, so the majority of states that have legalized medical marijuana do not prohibit discrimination on the basis of marijuana use. So I can, and here in Delaware where I am located, we have legalized medical marijuana. In theory, without any statutory protections, I could get a medical marijuana card, I could smoke marijuana because of a diagnosed disability, and then I could go into work, be drug tested and be fired, right? And that would all be perfectly legal There are several states, and they're listed here, Arizona, Arkansas, Connecticut, Delaware, where I am, Illinois, Maine, Minnesota, Nevada, New York, North Dakota, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. Those states have said you may not discriminate against somebody on the basis of their possession of a medical marijuana card, right? So the mere fact that I have a medical marijuana card and that I am permitted by law to smoke marijuana is not a good reason to fire me. Now, all of those states per, per, um, are permit discipline, uh, including termination, if I possess use or am under the influence of marijuana while on the job, right? So you can't fire me just because I have the card, but you sure as heck can fire me if I show up stoned, right? That these laws are meant to permit use outside of the workplace. I still have to show up stone cold sober for work. I cannot, on my smoke breaks, go out and you know, smoke marijuana or eat an edible, uh, th- that's completely uh, against the law. Um, and that's true in all of these states. If you are under the influence during work, you can be disciplined. Now, if you are in a state that has legalized medical marijuana, but does not prohibit discrimination, you've still got to be careful when you're disciplining people if they test positive for marijuana, because medical marijuana is an indication that there's a disability present, right? Uh, You know, California gets, I don't know if it's a bad rap or an accurate rap, but um, they have a reputation for being very easy with the granting of medical marijuana cards, But at the end of the day, if you are getting a medical marijuana card because you have depression or anxiety, you still have a disability. I don't care if you think that that's not a bad enough disability that you should be allowed to smoke an illegal drug. It's still a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and it's still a disability under, I would say, every state law that prohibits disability discrimination. So you've got to be able to establish that your concern is you know, actually the marijuana use, not the disability. Now again, states that prohibit discrimination, you can still uh, bar them from possessing, using, or being under the influence during work. What does this mean? If you want to discipline somebody that you believe is under the influence of marijuana you have to be able to identify a reasonable articulable suspicion right um, blood or saliva tests urine tests are not enough to establish intoxication they test for the presence of marijuana metabolites they do not test for the presence of thc which is the intoxicating component of marijuana Uh, so a blood test that says yes Lauren has smoked marijuana in the last two weeks, or a hair follicle test or a urine test, none of those is sufficient to discipline in the states that prohibit discrimination. You have to have a reasonable articulable suspicion. Again, you want the signed, dated checklist by a first-hand witness, and the Director of Human Resources, if you are a large enough organization, should supervise the process. And the reason is that the director of HR knows about the implications of these testing policy, of, of these limitations. So what you do is you fill out the checklist, then you send the person for a drug test in support of the, te- the checklist. Of course, the drug test is going to be positive because this is a person with a medical marijuana card, and presumably they've used marijuana in the last two weeks. And that's usually the window in which we can accurately test for marijuana use. So... That is the issue of marijuana uh, in the workplace. It is evolving. It is rapidly, rapidly changing. So if you are in a state that has legalized either medical or recreational marijuana, talk to a local employment attorney, especially if you are in a state that prohibits discrimination on the basis of being a marijuana cardholder so i think that that brings us to about an hour at this point i am going to turn uh control back over to catherine and throw open the door to questions
0: okay thank you thank you lauren um that was a wonderful presentation we do have a few questions so um the first one is what if we suspect someone is suffering from drug or alcohol issues but they don't have any accidents Uh, while at work that would allow us to pursue testing under a cause or suspicion-based process? And then we have a follow-up question to that. What if someone does have an accident at work and drug or alcohol issues are strongly suspected as being involved? So, you know,
1: this is all a question of how your policy is drafted, especially for issue number two. Issue number one, if there is no accident, then we want to be getting at that through a couple of, of procedures, right? One is a reasonable suspicion testing. Um, post-accident testing, as, as we've discussed, is not the only type of, of drug testing available. Um, you should have a policy that provides for testing on the basis of a reasonable articulable suspicion. If you think somebody has a drug problem, there's a reason you think that, right? They're showing up late consistently. They um, are letting their personal grooming go they're having a lot of interpersonal conflicts they're not performing in the way that they used to they're missing deadlines or they uh, their work quality has declined those are all things that you can document and say we have a reasonable articulable suspicion separate from drug testing uh you can also uh discipline them just for the poor performance if they are late if they're missing deadlines if their work quality has declined, discipline those things. You don't need a drug test to discipline those issues. Um, But the nice thing about a drug test is that it will tell you that somebody does in fact have an abuse issue and if you wanna retain that employee, you can then require them to seek treatment. Um, What if they do have an accident? Um, Again, we can get at that in a couple of ways. You can have a post-accident testing policy Usually those are vehicle accidents, but we could, you could also um, require testing if there is you know a, an egregious work accident. Um, so somebody falls out a second story window that says to me that something else was at issue, right? You don't usually fall out a window for no good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can get at it through a testing policy. If you don't have a if you don't have an, a post accident testing policy, then go at it through your reasonable suspicion testing policy, right? An accident can be a a reasonable, articulable basis to believe that somebody has um, a drug or alcohol intoxication issue in the workplace, right? Again, if you fall out a second-story window, that says to me, I have a reasonable, articulable suspicion that you were under the influence of something because people don't usually fall out of second-story windows.
0: Okay. Or, Or if you... I mean, I would say a strong suspicion wouldn't you say would be you know every ten thirty after their ten fifteen break they come back from the parking garage smelling like weed don't you oh think?
1: yeah, absolutely
0: you know another what I thought fairly common said. you know yes,
1: <laughs> yes, it is, especially right? here in downtown Wilmington,
0: right, yeah. Um,
1: what I thought you were going to say, which is another great uh, indicator of drug and alcohol abuse, is they miss every single Monday, right? They oh, miss right. every single Friday, right. every single holiday weekend, they're missing a day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, after
0: the didn't... Super Bowl. <laughs> well, yeah, after exactly. the Super Bowl, I guess, would be fairly common, I suppose, yeah. for <laughs> a lot of places, right?
1: You know, we're close to Philadelphia. Everybody misses work after the Super Bowl if the Eagles right. win. Nobody's been sober that weekend. <laughs> right.
0: Right. But that, yeah, I think after the breaks, I mean, you know, you, 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 somebody walks past you and you're like, whoa. Yes. Uh, yeah. If you smell like I mean, marijuana, I don't care what time garage, of day it is, right? you're getting tested. Yeah. yeah.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Oh, what what did you think I was going to say?
1: I, I thought you were going to say if they're missing work regularly. Oh, the, the yes. Mondays and Fridays,
0: yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we so having- we haven't. Yeah, we have yeah. another question here. So, um, is there any reason we shouldn't just sub- subject all job applicants to pre-employment drug testing? Shouldn't employers uh, wanna, want to want uh, to want it if their employees want to know if their employees are doing something illegal? I know you touched on this, but could you um, uh, uh, re- re-articulate that?
1: yeah so you know I did touch on that, but it's certainly a broader issue than 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 what I addressed, which is to say you know there are a couple of considerations here, as I said, you know if for a lot of my staff, if you're smoking marijuana recreationally on the weekend, I don't care right um, if you come to work sober and you do your job well, I'm not particularly inclined to to care that much whether you're doing something like that. Obviously, if you have a heroin problem, I, I'm very concerned just because I care about my staff, like I assume everybody listening to this webinar does. Um, so that's issue number one is, you know, non-addictive recreational use of certain drugs doesn't concern me. Just like if you were having a couple of beers every Saturday night, I wouldn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a cost to drug testing, right? It may be lower for medical providers that have you know, um, a, a facility at their, at their disposal, but um, to test everybody who applies for a job is burdensome, it's costly. Uh, so I think that all of those kinds of considerations would mitigate against testing everybody who applies, unless you have a good reason. Again, doctors, right? Life and death is in their hands. I think you know, you're very in a very defensible position to test all doctors.
0: Okay, okay. What about privacy rights? Um, Do employees have any privacy rights that limit our ability to conduct drug testing?
1: Excellent question. Um, Yes and no. Uh, Employees do not have a general privacy right that would prohibit testing. That said, as I said in the very beginning, we want to make sure that we are checking local laws to ensure that we are protecting uh, employees. that we're not engaging in in drug testing that's prohibited by law, and a lot of those laws were developed because of employee privacy privacy concerns. Now, the real concern arises once the testing has been completed. That's a medical test, right? Those records should be maintained in a separate file away from the uh, personnel file. They should be kept in a locked filing cabinet if you keep them electronically and instead of in paper, they should be in password-protected files. No employee should be able to just log into a computer and see somebody else's drug testing results. That's information that should only be accessible to senior leadership or HR.
0: Okay. Well, uh, how about a follow-up to that? Um, what about recording employees in the workplace? Is that acceptable?
1: I uh, so excellent question you know what if you think somebody is under the influence and you want to break out your iPhone and record them because that's even better than a checklist right a video mm-hmm. recording of somebody under the influence is pretty strong indication that, that there's an issue going on um, I uh, personally you know, there are there are a couple of things going on here right um we want to be careful about introducing recording in the workplace especially with iPhones, because we don't want employees to feel empowered. Every time they have a fight with their manager, they break out the iPhone and start recording it. I don't like that. However, um, general video cameras in the workplace, almost always permissible. You just want to give employees notice, right? This is a video recorded workplace. Anybody working in a hospital, there are video cameras every blessed place. Um, So a lot of that stuff, you know, is already in use. Um, just be careful that we don't want to create a workplace where every time somebody thinks that somebody else is doing something naughty, they break out the phone. Um, So if you want to use for example, an iPhone to video record somebody when they appear to be under the influence, make sure that you're addressing that in your drug and alcohol policy. Managers may use video recording devices to record conduct in support of reasonable suspicion testing. Um, employees are you know, still bound by our cell phone policy that prohibits record video or audio recording in the workplace, for example.
0: Okay. And then we have one last uh, question right now. Um, what about um, conferences or off-site business meetings? Um, what if one of our employees is injured while at a business meeting offsite, um, and drug or alcohol use is strongly suspected? You know, like their, their, their room is littered with um, alcohol bottles or pills. Um, um, do the same rules apply or does this get more complicated?
1: It's a lot more complicated because we move into the realm of workers' compensation law. So the general rule, when you get injured in the workplace, um, you are protected by workers' compensation insurance, which is meant to be uh, income replacement, um, and, and it pays for treatment. If your... injury is due to your own reckless conduct, such as drug or alcohol abuse, it can disqualify you from receiving workers' compensation benefits, but proving that, that standard can be tricky. So really what I would say to employers is first, you wanna retain a worker's comp specialist um, and there are many, many of them out there in your and your insurance company will identify one for you. Um, but you wanna document all of this stuff super duper carefully, right? You want pictures of the hotel room, you want police reports that they exist, you want um, medical records, usually your workers' comp carrier will require that people be drug tested or alcohol tested if they have to go to the hospital because of a quote-unquote work-related injury. Um, Mm -hmm. So you want to just make sure that you're complying with all of those requirements of your insurance carrier too.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, Do you have any other words of advice or anything that anything else that you wanted to leave with us that we should know?
1: Um, you know, this is a rapidly developing area because there are significant conflicts between state and federal law with regard to what drugs are legal, uh, medical marijuana, um, you know, and there are a lot of statutes that impact on this issue from workers' compensation to unemployment laws to the ADA and the FMLA and OSHA. You know, this is a, a, becoming a more and more complex area. It used to be that you just fired somebody if they had a positive drug test, and that was the end of it. Um But as this gets more complex, I just recommend that you think carefully, think critically, have a great policy in place, and if you are unsure at all, contact an attorney.
0: Okay, okay. Well, um, thank you again. And uh, attendees, please use the contact information on the screen for any questions that you have uh, for Lauren. Um, If you have questions later, you can send those to us and we'll forward them on. Please remember your PACOM and PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within three days um, or two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.